Hey folks, welcome to Florida Uncut. This is a podcast all about the people behind the conservation of wild Florida. If you're like me and you love Florida and you wanna get involved in helping protect the place we love, there's a lot of people doing a lot of things and I was quickly overwhelmed uh, trying to learn it all. So I just said, I'm gonna start a podcast so I can interview all these people. Well, we're starting the first episode off. The whole show we're starting off with probably the best guest I'll ever land is, is Mr. Jim Strickland here. He's a sixth-generation Florida cowboy and is the owner of Strickland Ranch and managing partner of Blackbeard's Ranch, which is where we did this interview, right inside one of his cabins, right in the living room. Beautiful cracker-style cabin, and his daughter was in the other room watching cartoons. You might hear that in the background just a little bit. And we're going to hear all about Jim's life story, how he got into ranching, which was unfortunately through the death of his father, where Jim then had to take over responsibility of all the assets his dad had or had borrowed or had debted. It was a really hard go there at the beginning, but Jim has pressed on and has become one of the most iconic Florida Cowboys. He has some stories about his times out in the swamps and rescuing dogs out of gators' mouths that are, are literally legendary. I mean, there's like paintings of some of the stories he's told. He's the real deal. And so this was an absolute pleasure to be able to sit down and talk with him. Through these conversations, I hope that you can learn more about how to protect Wild Florida, unravel some of the intricacies of who's doing what. There's so many people doing so many wonderful projects. This show is just meant to shine a light and have a single conversation with one of them at a time. So let's go ahead and jump in and hear how Mr. Jim Strickland is helping to keep Florida uncut. All right, folks, welcome to the show. We're here uh, at Blackbeard's Ranch with manager Jim Strickland. I, I just want to say, too, I, I know you're busy. We've been talking about, I've only known you about a week, maybe a couple weeks, <laughs> and you have been all over the place in that amount of time. Is that is that typical? Yeah, that's pretty typical. I mean, uh, you know, usually a Cowboys day is different, even if you're on the same ranch with us. We have, we're scattered out and have some different places where we have cattle, so you're always moving around. And, you know, aside from doing that, we're in different leadership roles in the Cattlemen's Association, Farm Bureau, uh, our conservation endeavors. And, you know, this is the ranch we're at now is, is Blackbeard. That's where we're sitting now, but there's about five other ranches that uh, that I take care of and there's Strickland Ranch and there's Quincy Strickland up there and, and uh, around north of Ocala so we're we're scattered out quite a bit and all that is under the the name what is there a name for all those together they're all their own thing they're all uh, they're all a different entity uh, there might be uh, different partnerships you know that come there's some that I own wholly there's some that I'm partners with some I'm different partners with uh, we just had one, we just had one group called Florida Cattle Ranchers Group, and, and we fed cattle at a feedlot up there in, in Chiefland, which was owned by Don Quincy, mm -hmm. which is also uh, a partner of mine in Quincy Strickland in North Florida. And uh, so we're, we're, we can dive into it, but we're, we're scattered out everywhere. I wish I could say some of the times I stayed at one place, but I don't stay at one place very long. No, you don't. I, you got a lot of entities to keep track of. And when I was reading about you, there's a lot of acronyms too in your life. Uh, you know, I just left, uh, I was just appointed to the, uh, farm service agency for the state of Florida, which really means that we are the gatekeeper for all funding for USDA that flow out through the 
agricultural entities, as particularly the money that it flows into the state from the federal government, it flows back out to those of us that have been damaged by by disasters. It could have been Hurricane Michael, it could have been Hurricane Irma, it could have been Hurricane Ian, um, that the Secretary of Agriculture, uh, Vilsack, uh, appointed me to this committee. So I'm just back from two days, two fun-filled days, up at the main USDA office in, in Gainesville, working on all the disaster uh, that was happened from Ian and all the multitudes of counties and the multitudes of commodities, orange groves, sit, orange groves, which are, you know, all varieties of citrus, farms, nurseries, cattle, um, is how are we going to, you know, use the federal money and how are we going to distribute it? Talk about acronyms. I actually ask. I was like, can I get a list of the acronyms of which we're using here today? Because I don't know about 99% of them. They should certainly. Guess how many pages I got of acronyms? Oh, Lord have mercy. I, I got 13 know. pages of acronyms. I'll share those with you if you want me to. I have actually, in my pursuit of understanding conservation in Florida, and you know, this is with any field, but I, I started a page or, or a document keeping track of all the acronyms from with you, it's got, I've got a, my own list of all sorts of different associations and projects going on. And I'm kind of blown away by all the entities you deal with, but I really want to dive back. I don't know if you tell this story a lot, but I really want to hear how, how you got into this. Your dad was a rancher and you grew up doing this. Where was that? What were you doing at that point? Well, most of the time I either wanted to be a cowboy or I wanted to be a surfer. So as, as long as we, let's just frame frame this. Which up. one did you do? Both. Okay. I'm, I actually have a new surfboard uh, down at the house. I don't use it very regularly, but the National Cattlemen Association actually had it made for me. Um, I I served <laughs> in some capacity with them, so it's interesting. I don't use that surfboard much. You can look at me and tell I'm not a surfer today. But we were ra- I was raised in Manatee County, not too far from the beach. My father. My father, uh, when he got out of World War II, he came, he met my mother at a boarding house. My mother was a, a social worker, just graduated from Florida State University, still remembers when, you know, it was an all-girls school. And so they met. Dad, after World War II, had open-range cattle uh, up towards Gulf Hammock, north of Crystal River, and over towards Ocala. And that's where all of us are from when we migrated in about 1858, 59. We migrated, the Stricklands migrated from Thomasville, Georgia area down to the Marion County Citrus uh, area, and we had not a lot of money. Uh, Still don't have a lot of money. Uh, Never gained a lot of fame and fortune along the way, but I think that one of the things that we've carried on through the generations is the love of the land and cattle. you don't make a lot of money off a cattle ranch. It's a slim margin of profit at best, but I think maybe that has been our downfall. We love the country, we love being in the woods, and we love following a cow uh, through the woods. So uh, when Dad came down here, he was he was stationed right there in, in uh, Crystal River, which was his hometown, and he started Strickland Brothers Sausage right after the war, and he was peddling sausage out of probably about a 52-model Chevrolet Met my mother at a rooming house before they had any uh, hotels, and uh, they got married. And I was raised in Bradenton, Florida. Went to school at Manatee High School, at, and also went to school at Walker Junior High School. Um, 
when when they had junior high schools before they had middle school so so i i love surfing i started surfing whenever i was probably around around nine or ten years old but i also love the cattle industry i love being on a horse but all our land was leased that we don't come from a long line of people that have a large amount of land and money that they transferred down to us we have leased land and i've leased land my entire life my father leased a lot we did own some land out towards parish florida and some up uh some up towards crystal river where we had cattle but the majority of it was leased dad died when i was uh 17 going on 18 and kind of left me with a lot of leased land to take care of for for my mother and uh, so that's what i did for several years and then eventually bought her out so the the le- there's a lot there I want to visit and I, and I do have some questions that you got into. Um, where in Manatee County exactly? Where not? Yeah, I, I was raised uh, I was raised on 51st Street, right next to the Country Club, but we did not have a Country Club house. We had we had an old rambling house, and uh, uh, our neighbors probably got tired of us because we always had a cattle truck. We always had deer dogs or cow dogs. Right always there in had- town. Right in the middle of town, um, about one to about four houses down from the Braden Country Club, and uh, Dad always had a uh, had a little farm in the side yard that he grew onions and he grew sweet potatoes because, you know, being coming up poor, uh, he always sweet potatoes you didn't need refrigeration for. He believed in having uh, sweet potatoes and onions. We also had a smokehouse in in the uh, in the backyard. So the smokehouse burnt down. I know twice that uh, the, the fire department had to come put the smokehouse out. So, so we were, we were kind of like the Beverly Hillbillies with no money. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So that was my life. So why not, why not be out in the country then? Why not? Because, what was keeping them in town? because dad, you know, we went going back to that slim margin of profit in your leasing, your leasing land. Dad was from the cattle business on open range mm-hmm. uh, up towards Gulf Hammock. Whenever he moved down here and married my mother, he needed a job and he, he had attended University of Florida, but never graduated. Okay. He'd done a lot of things in World War II and, and gained some skills, but he, he went to work for the fire department. Uh, so he was working for the fire department in downtown Brighton in Florida and leasing back then you could lease a lot of land and dad had connections to North Florida where he's from and they still had a lot of what we call cracker cattle a lot of those little sharp horned Spanish cattle that back then weighed about six seven hundred pounds and dad would go up there and buy them by the semi loads bring them down here to South Florida where we had better grasses deworm them you know, we killed all the parasites that, that were in them. And these were not tame cattle. They were little wild cattle. And, and so he was a fireman. And he had he had a lot of leased land around Manatee, Sarasota, and some down in Charlotte County. And he, and he was also a property appraiser, wasn't he, for a while? He was. Was that uh, at the same time of, of all this? It was right after being a fireman. Uh, he happened to be sitting there one day, and there was a reporter for the Braden and Herald that came by, and he always visited with the fireman just to check what was going on. And he, he and Dad had formed some sort of bond, and he said, Hiram, why don't you run for property appraiser? And Dad said, you know, that sounds like a really great idea. So how he financed his run, his first political run for property appraiser, he met who we call Uncle Archie Powell. He was the manager of the A&P uh, grocery store by McKechnie Field in downtown Brighton. 
they partnered and they planted 20 acres of sweet potatoes. And they said, if the sweet potatoes come in and make money, we'll have enough money for a political race. If the sweet potatoes don't, I'm not running for property appraiser because I don't have any money. Well, the sweet potatoes came in. He was elected uh, property appraiser and then reelected, I do believe, three times after that. Was the dream to always do cattle full time or was it just this is great as something to do on the side? Dad was a little unusual that um, he was raised very poor. He was he was one of nine children. His father um, was killed by a horse when he was 13 years old. Uh, so, you know, he, he was raised pretty tough back in those days. So he was very frugal. But he, he realized that off-farm income, which we still use today across America, is, you know, there's usually some of our family that work off the farm that being property appraiser afforded him a salary. He was good at it. He knew land very well. Uh, he knew valuations and he understood people. He ran, a, he ran a very good office, but he was also good about talking around campfires to cowboys because that's what he was. I mean, he was an open-range cowboy. So he could sit around and talk. I think that skill set led him to Tallahassee, that he was the lobbyist for the Florida Property Appraisers Association for many years until his, until his death. Uh, every year during the legislative session, my father would be in Tallahassee. He would be lobbying for property rights. He'd be lobbying for uh, the, and back then they called them tax assessors. That was before property appraisers. So dad could walk both roles. He could be in town or he could be on the ranch. His real love was being in the woods. If I said anything about my dad, I would probably say he was a woodsman, that he loved cattle. He knew cattle, but he loved just being in the woods. Just being out there. And that ultimately led, you know, his dad passed away when he was 13. You were a little older, but not by much, 17, 18. There's a big, there's a lot that happens from 13 to 17, but you're in basically in that same situation as he was. And all of a sudden, all this responsibility is on your shoulders. Was that the only option? Is that the only way it could go? Is that no. just what you had to deal with? No. There was, there was another option. Keeping in mind that I was young, um, I lived in town. The majority, majority, not all, but the majority of the land that we ran cattle on was, uh, was leased land. And there were quite a few of my father's confidants and, and friends that said, you know, Jim, you'll never make it in the cattle business. You'll never make it in agriculture that, you know, you aren't being left a lot of money. What you were being left was a lot of debt uh, because dad had bought, bought some orange groves and bought some land uh, before and we went into a recession. Um, so they tried to convince me to, you know, just to sell all the family cattle and go get a job in town. Well, that wasn't my dream since I was about seven years old was not being on a horse and not being on a cattle ranch. And, and so we, we stuck it out. My mother stuck with me for a couple of years. I was very fortunate that around 19 or 20, I found a bank in town that would loan me the money to buy my mother out, which, you know, of course, we, that, cattle were part of the collateral uh, for land. And uh, so I bought her out, and, and to me, that was my dream. That, that, was, that was my dream, was to keep doing what I wanted to do since I was seven years old, probably. I think I started really riding with a cow crew when I was about seven. So this was a dream of yours. You wanted to keep it going, and your mother was supportive or at least wanted to get you on your feet. Yeah, m my mother was very supportive. Uh, but she didn't have the financial wherewithal to say, hey, I'm going to give you this. It had to be purchased. And it goes back to, you know, the, 
it goes back to those people you meet, the people you know, and the mentors. And I have been very fortunate in my life to have partners and mentors. And I think it's still very important today in, in the endeavor, especially in agriculture, because we're less than 2% of the population. There's not a lot of us out there. So, yeah. so we need to find, we need to encourage those children that want to be in agriculture. I don't care whether it's sugarcane farming, cattle ranching, nurseries, or tropical fish. We need to put those children with mentors and try to educate them and make sure that's what they want to do. And then we need to try to help them because agriculture and these green space is what's really going to hold Florida together. Uh, it's held us together for a long time. But looking into the future, and I'm not looking 10 or 20 years down the road, but 500 years down the road, you know, that's when we need to start. But that's where we need to look is what are we going to look like? Because all of us, I don't know what your viewers age, but I'm assuming that's younger than my 67 years old. Um, but they're going to have children and, and they're going to see such drastic changes in the next 50 years of, of our state of Florida with the influx of somewhere around, you know, 700, a thousand new residents a day, you know, we're going to bump 26 million people in the state of Florida pretty quick. And then you throw in all of the tourists that come to Florida for all the things that we love, the sunshine yeah. and the water and the fishing and the outdoors. hundred million plus a year, something like that. 150 tourists that is. So you're right. You're one of the first people that I've talked to and I, when we, when, when I heard you speak at the, uh, the meeting, uh, downtown a couple of weeks ago, other than like the national park service, you're one of the first people I've ever mentioned conservation in the timelines, 500 to a thousand years. A lot of people say the next generation or a hundred years from now, but you're looking that far ahead. And what's crazy is how quickly it's changed in one generation for you, how fat, how much is gone double that in two generations, which you've also seen, or three. It's unbelievable. So yeah, in, in a, just a couple more in a, a generations, it could be either gone or just irreversible. Um, when did you start to see this or like start to uh, get a feel that this isn't guaranteed forever? Because you, you know, you, obviously at 17, you're probably focused on just making this work. At what age and at what time or did something happen where you noticed we got to not only work this cattle, pursue this dream, but also protect it. There were several things. One is lease land. As, as land was being developed, keeping in mind we're back in the, you know, we're back in the uh, early to mid seventies uh, here in Manatee and Sarasota County. And we're having a huge, you were having a fairly huge growth. One of the big catalysts was I-75 decided that, you know, it was going to come right through, right through uh, Manatee County. I remember riding my horse through the woods off of State Road 70, which was a two-lane dirt road. So it just came down, yeah. Is it still dirt? <laughs> <laughs> it was a two-lane dirt road, and I remember coming back to the barns where we kept the horses and asking the foreman, what are those survey stakes that go right through the middle of the woods? And we're talking about an ecosystem that is pine and palmetto woods for miles and he goes they're going to build a road through there i said well we've got state road 70 running you know it's running east and west this one's running south he goes well that's going to be called i-75 
So that was my first thing. So when I-75 came through, a lot of those leases that we had went into development. Uh, I used to have probably 800 acres on Sarasota Bay between Cortez or Tidy Island and wrapping around towards the original uh, El Conquistador. And all of those were part of, uh, excuse me, what I had was right next door to Manatee Fruit Company, uh, which was the Preston family, and they were some of the best gladioli growers in the state, of course. But I leased land from the, the family that had a lot of it that went right down to Sarasota Bay. So I had cattle there. So that wasn't it, but we had eight or ten other places. So we, you know, we, it became very normal to get a phone call to say, well, the land's been sold. You have 60, 90, 120 days to be off, and it's going to be a housing development. Um, so I understood that. I also understood I didn't have enough money. You know, I was barely making my bills uh, to, to, to buy much land, you know, maybe a 10 or 15-acre tract for a house. But so I think that was the growing knowledge of what was going on. Later on, how did it make you feel then? It well, it 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 was a loss of sometimes land you might have been on for fifth, you know, ten or fifteen years. You know, some of it was something my father had leased. So I had been on it since I was six or seven years old. So. You know, you become very close to a piece of land whenever you ride across it, gather cattle across it. We do control burns across it. We keep the fences up. You know, we, we perhaps hunt on it. Um, I was a hunter for a short period of time and not a, not a big hunter. Um, but you, you become very close to the land. And then when you see it being turned into something other than what you grew up with, uh, yes, then it, it is uh, a little heart-wrenching. But I want to be sure and say I am not anti-growth. I am yeah. not anti-building that you can't be. Because if we really think about it, where did all the land that is development in the state of Florida come from? It came from cattle ranchers or timber owners. And that was the vast amount of land. There was a little bit of farming, but going back to the original cattle, and by the way, make sure your viewers know, Florida is truly the birthplace of the cattle industry in North America. About 30 miles from where you and I are sitting, south, southwest to here, right around Charlotte Harbor, is where the first cattle came to North America. You know, this is very, very historic, very historic. And, I, and I, I, I feel like it's not well known. When I tell people that, it, it blows their mind. It's kind of like when I tell people there's bears in Florida. What? They have no idea. And so, they have bears? No, <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, the cattle, it, it started here. And, uh, Spread from there, same with hogs. Hogs started here, you know. Yeah, thank you, Ponce de Leon, yeah, for all, Ponce all, de Leon all the hogs. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah, I appreciate it. Um, so you started seeing those changes, and it was gut-wrenching then. When did you start to find a way to take action on that? Because the purpose of the show I'm using this episode for, I'm going to show it on my show, but I'm, I'm using it to also launch a new show, all about Florida conservation. So it'll be on both. Um, and what we're trying to do is get every Floridian an audio resource of things they can listen to to learn about these topics. Because to me, it's I've been back from Colorado about two and a half years, and I feel like I'm just now getting to the point that I can start to take action with some knowledge, you know what I mean, a base knowledge. So I'm trying to now build an audio resource for folks who are also interested in learning what's going on in Florida and how do I get involved. 
So that's what this conversation's about. So, so for you and your story, when did you start taking action and what did that look like? I'm going to have to back up just one small step. Okay. I got into horse wreck, broke about 20 something bones. Uh, my only, my only thing I could do was perhaps ride around in a truck for a while because I couldn't ride a horse. I did have a little education, a little education in, I had my real estate license. I had gone to Manatee Junior College at night uh, during this time period. And uh, so I could do appraisals, had a real estate license. I understood a little bit about bank and finance, so a little bit. During that time period, I was very blessed that I had the opportunity to go to work for the property appraiser under contract, still kept our leases, still kept our cows, but I could not what I call day work. Back in those days, I didn't have enough cattle to stay busy every single day riding a horse, so I farmed myself out to every rancher between LaBelle and Tampa. If you were riding a horse and gathering cattle, I wanted to be there because one, I needed the money. Two, I loved what I was doing. Now we're into three. I can't do any of the above. So I went to work for Manatee County Property Appraiser doing their ad valorem assessment for agricultural lands. I was the one that determined whether or not they met the criteria for being a commercial farm or, and I set the values. I set the values on what they were being taxed at, whether strawberry farms, citrus groves, or, or cattle ranches and a lot of other commodities. That's what's very unique about Florida is the amount of commodities we have here, the ag, the ag commodities. So there, I would work there for about 12 years under contract. Still kept all the cattle. It was, a, it was a busy time. But I watched so many families sell the ranches and sell the farms and sell the orange groves because as those families grew larger, there wasn't enough profit in it to keep all of those children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren in business on that land. And it was heart-wrenching now, doubly, I'm losing leases, but I'm also watching people that own land, that inherited land from great-great-grandfather or grandfather or father, you know, and they're, they're selling the land and all those legal transactions come through me at the property appraiser's office. So, so, so you're seeing a trend. I'm seeing this whole trend of me losing leases because this is a high growth. We live on Gulf of Mexico, south of Tampa Bay, north of Charlotte Harbor. This is a great place for people to move to. We're seeing that loss. I'm seeing the loss of what I had leased. I'm seeing the loss of what my counterparts that own land, and they're going to town. You know, they're taking the money and, and selling the ranch and going to town, keeping again. Every single building and road and hospital and school in Florida used to be a cattle ranch because we were an open range state. For about 300 years, there were no fencing. Rome from the Atlantic to the Gulf of Mexico and on some barrier islands. So, so we know, history tells us, we're not going to start bulldozing hospitals and roads and subdivisions to make a better profit by raising a cow or a tulip or, a, or an orange. It is not going to happen. So, so during that time period, tying all those together lost kind of personally i didn't own it but i you know seeing it seeing my world change around me seeing my counterpart and peer group having to sell their ranches it just came to a point where you know i had some epiphanal moments and said you know let's try to uh let's try to do what we can to to have a balancing act between conservation saving those lands and the growth that we're going inevitably we are going to have this growth in, in this state of florida mm-hmm so what did you start to do? So I, it, 
My first conservation easement, and those of which don't know a conservation easement, is I own a piece of land or you own a piece of land. It's large enough to where you could build multiple homes on it. You have an entity like DEP, Department of Environmental Protection, or uh, Department of Agriculture. They have a program called Rural Family Lands Protection that they come in two farmers, two ranches, two timber people, and say, we see the value of the land that you sit on to the rest of society. As such, we're going to make you an offer, and we're going to buy those development rights from you, which means into perpetuity, which is longer than that thousand years that I talk about, it's forever. Those rights are gone forever. When you sell them, you get one shot, one shot at the apple, that's that is you're going to make some money usually it's going to be around three to three and a half thousand dollars an acre it to some people that's a lot of money to other people that are sitting on land it's not so when you sell that you really need to reinvest that because what you sold is your rights to develop land you still run cattle on it you can still do a lot of different and you can still sell the land you can still sell the land but that instrument that conveyed the sale of development rights go with that land forever so the next person that comes along they can do exactly what you said you would do with that land or you can pass it down to your family so with those conservate with those conservation easements i did my first one whenever uh, about 23 years ago and, and and was it a new idea then like were you at that forefront of these becoming a, th- a thing you heard about these new things called well working at the easements. property appraiser's office i knew how to value a conservation easement and how to value a piece of land that didn't have a conservation easement. So I I knew the protocols for valuing land and then I would see what it was selling for because we have to track all the sales of all the land, whether it's development rights or a fee simple sale, which means transaction outright, outright, outright sale. So I did mine at that point. It was very tough. And I've had, I had, I had, uh, I had some help Senator uh, Bill Galvano, was instrumental in advising me on, you know, on my first, my first sale. And so I traded that for some other, some other things, but I didn't take the money. I took it for grazing some, the ability to graze land for, you know, 20 years instead of taking the money. It goes back to, I may not be real smart because all I wanted to do was kind of be a cowboy all along the way. And that afforded a poor broke cowboy to, you know, to have some longevity and some uh, permanent, uh, at least permanent for that amount of years. So I traded it for a grazing lease. Uh, from there, uh, you know, I've, I've been blessed to have partners. I have one and I'm the poor, still the poor broke cowboy. But uh, my job is to monetize land that we have bought through, you know, through Florida, but mainly in, in South Florida. So we looked at doing conservation easements. We found out that they weren't funded. At that time, there was not a great amount of desire to fund those easements. Like Jeb Bush funded them at, at a huge amount, two, three, four, five hundred million dollars a year, especially through Florida Department of Environmental Protection, what we call Florida Forever, which was one of the premier land preservation project programs in the United States of America. So, so before, for folks listening to follow along, because I'm trying to understand this the best I can. So conservation easements exist. They're a tool that we can use. And whoever came up with that, it's, it's, it's brilliant because it allows you to at least keep the land where it is uh, as a ranch or as a, a, an agricultural, agricultural use. 
doesn't let it progress further, well, not degress further to a development, but there's no funding for that. So there's like, so landowners don't necessarily have an incentive if uh, they can't, you know, it's like, all right, you know, it's great that my land's worth this much in a conservation easement, but no, no money's there to actually pay for it, to buy it. Unless it's put in the budget. So that's why this was important. That's why, because that's why this is important. That, that we had the money under, under uh, Jeb Bush's administration, a lot of money. A lot of money to do those things through Florida and, forever, and through subsequent. Also, we go into recessions. You, you, you know, you have to be able to validate where the public's tax money goes. And if if people are in a recession, you're probably not going to buy land. That you probably need to do those social services and those programs to help people survive during that recessionary period. We understand that we live in Florida. We uh, we live in a roller coaster of economic development loss up down and by the way let me just say that agriculture has always been there and the good times were there and the bad times sometimes were the number one economic engine in the state of florida and there's only two percent of the population involved in agricultural management uh so conservation easement funding uh went through all those travails i started going to tallahassee along with at the same time met julie morris Julia Morris is probably one of the leading wildlife biologists and now one of the leading conservation easement knowledgeable persons in Florida. Met her. She and I started lobbying for funding for DEP, Florida Forever, lobbying for funding for Florida uh, Department of Agriculture Rural Family Land Program. They're similar, but a little different. DEP, Florida Forever, uh, wants a little more pristine little more pristine wilderness maybe not as many orange groves and farms and improved pasture they want more of a, a native land but they will take both rural family lands is really for operating farms they both garner approximately the same amount of money per acre for a conservation easement so we started lobbying for both of those for dep and and that it's a tough sell during the wrong times but we partnered with the Department of Defense to where we could utilize their funding and they would contribute sometimes 50% to those conservation easement buys and would be able to extend what little money we did have. And I've seen times we only had $7 million in rural family lands and we could double it by partnering with Department of Defense, especially around Eglin Air Force Base. Avon Park, those yeah, areas, those peripheral lands. Yes, that they were like there. They were like, oh, it'd be nice to have an even more of a buffer around some of these bombing ranges. Exactly. exactly. So and let's, so let's we called them Sentinel Landscapes. So so we partnered with them. We could extend those. Now, right now, as we're sitting here, uh, our new commissioner of agriculture, Wilton Simpson, has three hundred million dollars. That's thanks a lot in part to a lot of work for a lot of conservation organizations for a lot of years, you know, Audubon and Sierra and Defenders of Wildlife and, and U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and all of these have worked for years. And we've had several things that came about. One is the awakening of what, you know, this wildlife corridor where wildlife can walk up and down Florida. And that has been a big catalyst for politicians. We're also in a pretty good time economically. Uh, to put $300 million in the legislative budget last year for Commissioner of Agriculture 
Uh, we're looking forward to two to three hundred million dollars in the governor's, but what I call the governor's budget, which is Department of Environmental Protection, uh, for both programs. Those are the two main programs that we have in Florida. But we also have some counties which have environmental lands program. Manatee County has one. Sarasota County has one. Hillsborough County has one. So the, Polk just got one. Polk, Polk just yep. got one. Now, Polk had one, oh, but, did. but it was extrapolated out just recently by the vote. But yes, Polk had, all, had had one for many years. So it, it was time. It had run out of its time and it needed to be uh, re-voted on. So we have counties that have those. We also have water management districts, which have that ability to do those same conservation easement uh, buys. So counties can do it. Water management districts can do it. And DEP can do it. And um, rural family lands. One last one that can do it is USDA NRCS programs. They can buy easements also. And... They're kind of they at times, depending on budgets, they are they're one of the bigger ones at at times when the and all their funding comes from farm bill. Everybody hears about the farm bill and it's very confusing. But a small portion of the farm bill goes to conservation east buys across America. Wow. Yeah, this is great. I'm learning so much uh, and trying to make it very clear so r- really, these conservation users, all these entities have the ability or have maybe a motivation for a conservation easement, are all of those also of the same standard, or do they have to follow a conservation easement standard, say, cannot do certain things across the board, and also it's always into perpetuity? All of them that I'm talking about are into perpetuity. At one point, 25 years ago, we used to have less than than perpetual easements. And you mentioned something about a grassland... 20-year easement that you, the first one you did? Uh, yes. Was but, that one of but, those? But I, got, I divested the development rights, and basically, instead of getting money, I got a grazing lease. You know, so, on so, that land. Yeah, on that land. But right now, we have very few, unless it's somebody private that wanted to invest and say, I want to save this for 20 years. I'm going to give the landowner something. That, I haven't heard of that happening. So they are all perpetual. They all have legal instruments which have some differences because you sit. it's not a one-stop shop for all of those entities. Manatee and Sarasota County can write their own easements. They can make their own decisions on what they're going to allow on there. They may allow uh, a little bit of farming, a little bit of sod production, other easements like, yeah, like uh, Florida Forever, they really don't want to allow intensive agriculture. Rural family lands, you can. So, so when you sit down at the negotiating table, other than the federal government, the federal government has one contract. That's it. There's really no negotiating there. You know, we're going to give you so much, and they go through an appraisal process. They go through an evaluation process. The environmental, the ecological um, aspects of these different properties. Because again, let's not forget, we're spending the taxpayers' money on these so we need to be able to prioritize those i don't want to be buying as a taxpayer i don't want a bunch of land bought that you know isn't ever going to be developed anyhow or i don't want all of our budget money to be spent on on the beach to buy five acres on the beach when i could buy fifty thousand acres 
inland that could really protect the whole you know the whole community and when i talk about community i'm talking about you know maybe a whole estuary like charlotte harbor tampa bay or you know uh, one of those so it it was a lack of funding for years now uh now with the great awakening of the wildlife corridor it has truly helped we got the people trekking across florida we've got people on board now we've got a a lot of different entities, and uh, and I'm sure if you haven't had them on, you're going to have some of my friends uh, on here from the Wildlife Corridor Group. Oh, absolutely! They're I mean they already know about it, and I've got them tentatively, tentatively booked. Um, but I want to ask when so you're pursuing these this passion of conservation while you're also operating a ranch. I, I guess how did you balance the two? It's tough. Yeah, but there's really good people. There's really good people on the ranch. There's really good people involved on the conservation on the conservation business. We we have formed Florida Conservation Group. When I say we, I am part of it. But Julie Morris, which going back, one of the best. Julie Morris is also an advisor to U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service for Florida. She is with National Wildlife Refuge Association, and she is also with Florida Conservation Group. And so. What we do is help facilitate those entities we spoke about that have the funding with those landowners which have the desire because it is a long involved process to sell development rights. It's not like buying and selling a house. Sometimes it might take you a year to two years to get it evaluated because it has to be ranked. You have to go out and bring a group of experts, you know, especially you've got a group from FNA out there to evaluate these ranch lands. Then they prioritize them. And then those at the top of the list are the ones that are eligible first to be purchased, conservation easements purchased. If they're not interested at that time, if the money is not where they thought it was going to be per acre for an easement, it keeps dropping down. In the meantime, you also have a lot of other lands coming into the mix that are in the queue that are being inserted in there and evaluated so you may have some that are on been on that queue that list for five years and you may have one that just got onto that list that everybody said the experts said this is a one of the most valuable needed buys for the citizens of florida always it comes back to to me is the citizens of florida because it's their money for the most part that pay for these easements. If we go to a federal easement, then of course it's still citizens, but it's the American citizens that uh, that pay for those. We have to be responsible with that money. How does that timeline differ when a developer wants to come along and buy the land? Well, it's it's fairly easy if you live in a progressive county that already has an urban service boundary line. The zoning is already there. They can look at it, see the zoning. If there's no modifications they need to make, Basically, it's showing up uh, with a wire transfer or a check. You do a title search. You do an environmental audit, if needed, uh, on that property. And in 60 days, uh, the developer owns the piece of dirt. So if you think about it of, of, the, of, the, uh, of the landowner, am I going to wait two years, three years, and get a conservation easement of three or 4000 or am I going to sell it to the developer? It depends upon the urgency of that landowner. That's where Florida Conservation Group steps in. We help them uh, walk through those sometimes minefields. We help to educate them. We also lobby for funding. 
We also lobby for cost share practices to keep all those ranches in business while we're waiting on conservation easements, which is very important, is those federal cost share practices that help us on burning, help us on conservation practices, help us on many dams, help us on a lot of different uh, programs on our land that better us as landowners, but it also betters the communities that live downstream. What I want to know, here's where, what I wanted to know next is, uh, you know, a developer can come in, like you said, 60 days and, and really, really move mountains quickly. Uh, what are you finding? Why would a landowner of a large parcel, say something like hundreds of acres or a thousand, what is usually that motivator that they want to get it under a conservation easement? What do you see as the biggest motivator of landowners to not sell it to a developer? Love. Love of the family. Uh, love of what his family maybe before him had done on that land. I'm looking at it from a cattle rancher's perspective. You know, looking at it that, uh, you know, there's a lot, of, a lot of graves out there. A lot of good horses and good dogs. And in a lot of cases, a lot of good human beings that went before him that were, got the permission to be buried on that ranch. The love of the land. And wanted to extend that love out to future generations. That... I do believe is a is a lot of that desire because you are going to take less than fee simple, but the land means something to you. And I I never want to sound uh, representing landowners, and I'm not a big landowner. Uh, representing landowners as as being being arrogant because I want your viewers to all know they're all landowners. If you pay taxes and you go to federal parks and state parks, community parks and county parks, you paid for those. You're also a landowner. If a development rights sale happens on a piece of property near you, you may not be able to go on that property, but you are going to get the benefits of that property staying as green space, staying as working cattle ranch, staying as a working timber farm into perpetuity, and you helped facilitate that. And I want to say thank you. Thank you to those viewers, because at 2% of the population, we don't control much of the politics and much of the directions that happens in Tallahassee or Washington. That comes from 98% of the rest of the population, so we need to make friends. Those friends are the ones that pay for those conservation easements to save those, but we have overwhelmingly voted in Manatee County, I'll use Manatee and Sarasota, Hillsborough County, that we want to conserve lands. We had a constitutional amendment we voted on, said by one of the largest percentage of votes ever in the history of Florida, we want to preserve some lands. Some of the times the politicians listen. Some of the times the economic uh, atmosphere is such that you can't spend a lot of money on conservation. Some, but when we do get the ability to have a budget and coffers full of, of those taxpayers' dollars, let's go spend it on what the taxpayers ask us to spend it on. So... We are, uh, we have a crossroads here and we need to move quickly because land is not getting a lot cheaper. Have we had a bump? Is it the craziness of which happened in the last two years? Not quite. It's still crazy. We still live in the sexiest state in the union. We live in Florida. We have Disneyland to Miami Beach. We have the Red Hills north of, uh, north of Tallahassee. We have all these beaches, all this fresh water, all this ability to, to work and live and play, not worrying about snow down here. And it all ties back to water. 
and it ties back to water. And if you have impermeable surfaces and if you have developments and you ditch and drain everything because you have to, and you, you essentially have changed the whole landscape of the land and it will happen. It is going to happen. And again, I'm not anti, I'm not anti growth. What I'm is for and I'm advocating for is smart growth. Look a thousand years. Give that thousand year stare down the road and wonder what is this state going to look like because I have the ability to help it or hurt it right now today. And your, your viewers will see those same opportunities to get behind us, to get behind the environmental groups around the, around the agricultural groups because in days gone by, environmental groups and agricultural groups did not play well together. We're playing in the same sandbox today. Same sandbox, same mission. Uh, and when we go to Tallahassee or we go to Washington, we are finding out that we have a lot more similarities than we have differences. That's something you do here specifically at Blackbeards too, is partnering data-driven science and fact-driven science with the storytelling, the anecdotes, and kind of that legacy of, of agriculture and ranching that's partnered here. And it, it sounds like that wasn't the case that many years ago and just those two groups really getting along but now they're starting to have to and and now they have and now they're starting to have to because the environmental communities are really seeing what green space does and the loss quickly of green space is is, is happening so we have a lot more collaboration right now um this ranch is that we happen to be sitting on is just like a lot of other well-run ranches across the state of Florida. There's nothing special about this. It is no more special than those other big well-run ranches. So if, you're, if your viewers are listening from uh, anywhere in the United States of America, I promise you there's some well-run ranches that are providing benefits that you're not aware of. And, and I, I want to make certain that we hit on those because the Wildlife Corridor helped bring an awareness it's the landowners, it's the ranchers out there that are going to be able to, to truly make that decision that we're going to preserve this land. I think that conservation easements are a good tool, but I also think that it is a, it is a large mandate. Next, the next thing we must do, and this is my mission statement now because I chair the uh, Solution from the Land Committee for the state of Florida, co-chair it with Lynetta Griner is that we need that data, that science to tell us what is a wildlife corridor truly worth for the wildlife. That's only one aspect. I want to know about water quality, water sequestering, ephemeral wetlands, recharging aquifers. Besides those endangered species, besides that wildlife habitat that we're talking about, as carbon sequestration. That's going to be the big one. We know things are happening. We know things are developing. We have other countries that are doing a lot more than we are. Uh, you probably saw in the last Biden-Harris uh, announcement, they have a lot more programs looking at climate change, sea level rise. The answer is not going to be pavement and asphalt. The answer is going to be farmlands and timberlands and green space. Uh, even going back to the nursery operations that are up all up and down the coast, and they might be 10 or 15 acres. Those are going to be the answers. But we need to come up with a data-driven score sheet for each piece of land. I want to know how much carbon they're going to sequester based on soil type, 
based on where they are, based on the usage of the land, an ecosystem that is sitting on top of that piece of ground. I want to know during drought years and wet years what is happening there that we can show the rest of the public they get, forget the conservation easement that you gave us $3,000 an acre for for $15,000 acre land. 50, 100, 200 years from now, how much is that land going to be worth? So now we have to say, what are you providing for society? Clean air, oxygen, clean water, ephemeral wetlands that help clean it. You have the ability to store water and you're saving those wildland species or those wildlife species that are going back into across Florida by what we call the corridors. Well, we need to truly look at that because in the future, in the future, you will see, and it's already starting to happen, you will see a marketing, I won't call it a ploy, but a, a marketing arrangement to where you will soon see you too can live in the middle of a wildlife corridor. You will see that into the future. So those ranchers and timber owners or land bankers that that haven't sold, you will see a desire to now, we've brought so much attention to the wildlife corridor, now I want to live in that wildlife corridor. So, right. so you know, that's something that... It happens I, with national I, parks. Exactly. That yeah. it, if and when you buy a lot in a, a planned development, you want to usually live next to a pond, a water feature. By the way, they're all man-made. It's like Barbie land. You know, I mean, you took a piece of raw land and you developed it and you put home sites on it. You dug homes, but also they put golf courses through there. You want to live next to a golf course. Well, what's the ultimate that you could live next to? And that would be a pristine piece of Florida or agricultural land that you know is never going to be developed that your home backs up to. So let's... let's Panther Ridge. When I drive by that on the way here, don't know anything about it because I'm like, well, not anymore. It might have been, but you tell me there might be a story there. Well, um, I happen to be the only person that lived in the middle of Panther Ridge. Really? Before it was Panther Ridge. And I, I, I bought 10 acres in the middle of Panther Ridge because I was riding a horse gathering cattle on about 6,000 acres out there. Found a spot that all the trees were growing. I did have my real estate license. I researched it, bought it for $500 an acre. I was, I was living there when State Road 70 was a, was a dirt road. I did live there for 15 years. I never saw a panther. I, I never saw a panther. Now, were there panthers that, that traversed back and forth through there? Absolutely. But so many of us ranchers have never seen a panther. I don't know how many times I say, be in a meeting and go, how many has seen a panther? Very few, unless you live down towards Fakahatchee. I've actually and, seen one. And and uh, and I've I've been in the woods nearly my whole life as a Boy Scout, as a Cub Scout, as an appraiser, as a cowboy. Never seen a panther. I've seen a lot of things I thought were a panther, but nothing that I would hold my hand on a Bible and say that was a panther ever. That that I could do that. But panthers tell a story. But there's so many other native species that we need to protect those landscapes for. Panther is a really great image, but you know, one of my favorite is uh, roseate spoonbills. I mean, mm -hmm. I love to see a whole flock of, of roseate spoonbills on the, on these, on these ephemeral wetlands. I mean, to me, that's just like, Oh, it's amazing. Uh, amazing. amazing. Yeah. Uh, swallowtail, you know, swallowtail kites love to see those whenever they're circling and catching before they head south. 
So I love to. I, I love, love seeing the Kara Kara on your land or burying owls. You know, it's it, and that's not going to happen in a neighborhood. Yeah, we've done two studies on burrowing owls. There's been two theses with, written on burrowing owls, and and uh, one of the things I told the professors before we started was, you're going to find that that us mowing and taking care and grazing those lands where the owls are are more conducive for owls than leaving it uh, vacant and wild and we totally disagreed at the end of both theses that were done. They came to the conclusion. They said, you know what? The cowboy was right at the very beginning when he said, we're going to find out. And it, so I've, I have been very fortunate, and a, and a lot of my counterparts have better stories than me. A lot of them do. But being able to learn how to herd burrowing owls to where we could herd, actually herd them across the pastures, and then trap them and microchip them to study them. Because if we're going to survive, we have to have research. And if we and if we have that research, and then we can quantify that research that will tell society, that other 98% of, of Floridians, I'll use Florida, this is what you get when you do conservation easements, that someday we're going to be in the market to sell carbon credits. We're going to be able to, to know that we are preserving wildlife corridors endangered species and we're filtering water and we're really saving those coastal communities passively that most people don't know we need to know and that's why university of florida and the research that we're doing there with our committee solutions from the land and the budgets that we run through the legislative session we have one now uh, on artificial intelligence we are a true believer that it needs boots on the ground to quantify and get that data and research we also are in a time crunch that we're going to have to use satellites and ai artificial intelligence to collect that data analyze that data and spit out something that we can show to the people of what these lands are worth to them mm. How do you stay on the cutting edge of all this information and <laughs> and knowing about all this stuff? You talking to me? I'm talking to you. <laughs> I got some really smart friends. Yeah. I've got some super <laughs> smart friends. I by the way, on this ranch, we were just uh awarded the grant just yesterday. We've had it in the queue for USDA that we will be doing the first invisible fence for livestock on a large scale done in the southeastern United States that we're going to take approximately 2,000 acres and we are going to install through satellites and my computer and my mouse the ability to have invisible fencing across 2,000 acres that if we decide one morning that we want to keep all the cows out of a riparian area we simply click a polygon like we're digitizing acreage around there and go click and we just installed an electric fence that's unbelievable we know that it's a prototype and we know we're going to have a lot of bugs but we've had a lot of bugs in every every major success we've had in america so i think that this invisible fence project coupled with the wildlife corridor where wildlife can run back and to through it freely it's the cows that we can now rotate because rotation of pastures is one of our great tools we use for conservation and cattle management daily we can change the fence lines on there so and i'm sure that that there might be secondary or tertiary benefits to to herd management once you have every single one of them mapped essentially mapped and it is just and basically fun out of finding them i'm sure 
Yeah, it's, it's kind of like the Panthers down in South down in South Florida because I've kind of I was on the first Panther depredation committee that was formed here a long time ago. And with the Panthers, you know, having that real time ability to get up in the morning and go, well, let me look at my iPad and see where my cows are today. And you see that, whoa, look like all of them are over here in the northwest quadrant. But why are those two cows down there? And we may go out there and find those two cows had trouble calving. We may find out they were hit by lightning. We live in a pyrogenic state, lightning capital, kind of the United States here. And then we have to do what we need to do. So, yes, you, you, you got it. I mean, you grasp it that quick. It's not just to be cool and have an uh, invisible fence, but it's what are the benefits for us and society that are going to happen from all of this AI technology. And we are strong advocates for funding AI technology as it has to do with agricultural operations uh, right now. I think that that is uh, of paramount importance also. You're on the cutting edge. This is really exciting. I can't wait to see how that goes. Can't wait to see the invisible fence. You can't wait to yeah. see the invisible fence. I feel like I'm looking fence. at one right there. <laughs> you could be. In, a, could in the be. next three months, you could be looking at invisible fence. Might be fence. one right in between us. We don't even know. And we don't know, but we you and I can play, <laughs> but uh, the cows can't. So a lot of your the work you do now is, is, you tell me if I'm wrong here, helping other ranchers see the light and understand that Hey, we need to do this. Do you feel like the average rancher, the average landowner has the understanding that they need to of their options when it comes to offloading the responsibility of their land? Or is there a, a huge education curve with most of them? Both. Uh, absolutely both. We've got some extremely astute ranchers you know, out here, but we also have those that, that they have done a lot of things to pay for that land to survive to put their kids through college that don't know. And, and this isn't me with this knowledge. This is a group of, of really brilliant scientists like Julie Morris, like Dr. Tom Hochter, which worked on the original Wildlife Corridor, and, and it was called, it wasn't a very sexy name, the Florida Ecological Greenways Network. He and Dr. Larry Harris, he was a student for Dr. Larry Harris, and they were the ones that really coined that term and have been tracking it for 25, 28 years. They've been tracking the Wildlife Corridor and still tracking it. The 2070 plan just came out. Uh, and, and Dr. Dr. Hochter was a big part of that, of, of the effects of growth, light, ambient light, uh, roads, uh, sales of land. of, of Priority uh, lists of land, I believe, was on that. Yes. So it's not me. It's, it's, not, it's not the poor broke cowboy. It's the poor broke cowboy as associated with mentors and partners uh, that really have that knowledge. I can regurgitate some of this stuff. Very well, by the way. Well, I think, thank you. Yeah. Uh, but they're the ones that know it. They're the ones that have the degrees that have spent many hours in the field uh, through college and through their endeavors or around the world. I mean, the people I associate with have been in all around the world doing conservation uh, projects. And so if I know anything, I started with Julie Morris. My father is a woodsman with her as a conservationist and then broadened it out to to a, to a close group of friends that, uh, that care about Florida. What would you say your priorities are today as a rancher and as a conservationist? What do you think is, is conservation, are conservationism still the best tool to use? 
Right. And what, what are you doing every day and trying to get done? I still have to monetize all these ranches. You still have that, to make money. That's, you still have to that, make a living. Yeah, that, you know, just to where we're, we're brilliant. I'm not retired. Um, you know, that whether I'm feeding cattle or marketing beef to the public or honey to the public or guava jelly to the public, which we all do. We, uh, we have pork sausage. Uh, you know, we have all these different things. How are your feelings about the future of Florida? You've seen a lot of change in your lifetime. You said you used to own land or lease land that went all the way to the coast. Cows could go all the way to the coast. That feels like a million years ago at this point in the sense of how much I was blown away coming down 70 to where it felt rural. It took a lot longer than I thought I remembered coming down here the last time I've been here. That is on a, a, a minuscule amount of the change you've seen. How do you feel about the future of Florida? The future of Florida is really people like you telling our stories to the rest of the 98% of the population of Florida. They're the ones that are going to make the difference. We're the ones that we're doing our best to do something that we love. But now it's evolved from a quiet profit center into we've seen the loss of magnitude of lands in the state of Florida that a lot of people say, I really want to save this piece. It, there's been a catalyst by development of, I really would like to see it saved, but there's a big but. We're still all coin operated. Very few of us are independently wealthy, and I'm certainly not independently wealthy. So you have to make some money because we have to take care of our children and our, and our grandchildren. What we're looking at now is taking care of our grandchildren's great-grandchildren. Those are the ones we're looking at taking care of. I and mean, we have to take it seriously. and We have to look that far into future. How am I going to feel about it is going to be a roller coaster ride. If I, if I lived another 30 years, I would probably see that roller coaster of desire to save conservation, rise up, come back down into the valley at times whenever we hit some sort of uh, economic hardship here or a pandemic or anything that can happen and then see it rise back up that we have seen the roller coaster ride of Florida. I mean, you know, there's many books that are out there about development of Florida and the booms and the bust and the land sales. And one of the best books in the world, of course, is Land Remembered by Patrick Smith. And the last time I was with Patrick Smith, um, Carlton Ward and I went over there to have Patrick write a foreword for, I believe it was one of our first ranch calendar projects and that was about 15 years ago and and i knew patrick um and so carlton and i went over there i introduced him to carlton and we made the deal with patrick he was very gracious at his uh, merritt island uh very gracious he wrote the foreword for us and he said i want to show you uh, i want to show you a picture it's my favorite picture it's in his living room and I went into the living room and it was hanging up there was a pen and ink drawing of three cowboys on horses and the the name of it was good friends good stories and patrick said this is a a piece that was done by my dear friend eldon lux a cowboy out in nebraska that lives right around the corner and works on ranches and he paints and he does pen and ink and he goes i'm a storyteller i tell stories but those are the people i tell stories about and i said man that is great it's wonderful, but does anybody in that picture look familiar? 
And so I, I'll never forget that Carlton and, and, and Patrick were looking at a picture and Patrick turned around and looked at me and he was like, that's you in the middle of the picture on that paint horse, isn't it? And I said, yes, sir. Eldon Lux is, is a friend of mine. Patrick Smith, uh, I have given out so many of Patrick Smith's books. The Seminole Tribe has done a, a lot of printing with Pineapple Press to get it out to children. <laughs> Uh, I think it, if if there is one book that needs to be read by every Floridian, it's Remember This Land by Patrick Smith. It is a phenomenal book. You can read Alapata, Forever Island, uh, City of Angels. You can read all of those. The one that all of us ranchers will come back to is paramount importance is A Land Remember. When you have Rick Smith on with you, his father was one of my heroes truly one of my heroes um he made it he made a difference he still makes a difference by that book we still give those books out to a lot of different people if you're going to read another one is i take this land by richard powell and and it's similar to remember this land but it's the same storyline of the history of florida what has happened and the fear of the future Mm. i haven't read that one but I would say a land remembered is probably why I'm talking to you right now. Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, that book changed my life. And I, I hate to say it as a, as a born and raised Floridian, rural Floridian, it took me till I was 30 years old to read it. And it, I don't know why, but, uh, it, it changed everything when I read that. And so what's neat is, yeah, that it's definitely a, a, a book. Every Floridian I actually gifted that to my mother-in-law, uh, signed by Patrick Smith for Christmas this year found a copy online well he is a florida icon absolutely patrick smith is a true florida icon and the effect that's what you and i are sitting here talking about today is how do you and i i mean we're not sitting here to to make five dollars we're sitting here to try to move that needle that's why that's why you're here that's why i'm here is i need you to tell the story because i can't tell that story and so many of the ranchers of of florida cannot tell that story they have to have folks like you or the movie makers or the people at newspapers or magazines or all of those media things that that we don't even we don't even know about patrick smith will make a difference in florida for years and years to come because i actually have like you several signed copies from Patrick's that, you know, when it says to Jim, I picked up one in Julie's in, in Julie Morse's and it said to, to Julie Morse, please keep conserving the land. Patrick Smith. Yeah. And that one stays in the, in the bookcase and you read the other ones, you read the other ones. And not only that, but I would say I've read a land remembered probably eight, 10 times that I have. I just finished it again just about three weeks ago. I got it on audiobook now, and I just... Now, if they would make a movie out of it and get Taylor Sheridan that did yeah, Yellowstone and... Or the rights are bought. I, I do know that. Patrick discussed that because he was recommending... I remember the conversation that he, he said, I recommended that Tommy Lee Jones play one of the main McIvy characters... So, so I, I, you know, I recommended that, but somebody had bought the book rights. I mean, the movie rights, I understand. And Rick's going to be able to tell the story accurately. I'm going by anecdotal conversations, but I understood that it is sold again. Oh yeah. And and that doesn't mean much, you know, to sell the rights. People are just holding on to it for 
if they ever come across the right, you know, it's time. Yeah, you're just buying yourself some time. It's time. A land remembered would reach all stratas of society um, if they if they did it right. You know, looking at yet, of course, Taylor Sheridan is one that really was instrumental in in Yellowstone and what was it, eighteen ninety three, nineteen twenty three, all those different ones. I walked in to get glasses yesterday to show you the impact of what you and I are talking about. I walked in to get glasses, had on a, a Columbia shirt and flip flops. And, uh, the lady, you know, the lady said, do you have an appointment? No, I, I need new glasses. You know, <laughs> I got a child that broke my glasses. And, and, uh, so we were, we were chatting and then, then she goes, well, if you don't have an appointment, I'll try to help you being very nice. But, you know, I said, well, if you could, I live a long ways from here. What do you do? I said, I'm a rancher. And she's like, you know, look me up and down. She's your rancher. I had to show her a picture. And I surf. And yeah, I surf. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had to show her a picture. And once I did, you know, the first thing's out of her mouth. Have you seen Yellowstone? And I said, Yeah, I've seen Yellowstone. She goes, The better is 1923 with Harrison Ford. I have watched every episode like three times. All of a sudden, I had three pair of glasses. I mean, I mean, it is, but to show you the impact that you can do, but film can do something they can easily watch of seeing the changes and that, and, and they could show visually the changes from. From Wild Florida to uh, South South Beach yeah. to Palm Beach, you know where a lot of that story took place. Um, oh, it's it'd be perfect. It'd be call perfect. Taylor Sheridan and ask him to buy the rights that he just bought Four Sixes Ranch out in Texas, and he's really marketing the Four Sixes right now. But Taylor's the one that needs to do a land remembered. Well, I, one more question, because um, I know we could talk forever. I just don't want to. I don't want to get on her bad side. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you were you were saying you know two percent two percent is all that's working on this, you know this land that represents I don't know what percentage but way more than two percent way more than half the vast majority of land in Florida. What what would you tell the other ninety eight percent? What is something they can do? Anyone that's listening to this that says I, I want to do something about this, but maybe you know I don't have land, I don't have a real estate license, I'm not an expert in any of this what is something that you've seen the public do that actually helps move the needle by far is one you you've got to tell our story and people like you and the public can help share our story so once we do this nobody listens or nobody talks about it we haven't accomplished our goal politicians make the difference tallahassee makes the difference. The Senate and the House do the budgets for conservation. Without them, it's a great story with no legs. Without money, it's a story with no legs. So they're the ones that help decide what the budgets are going to be. But never forget, they work for you. The citizens of Florida have that impact that they need to convince the senators and representatives Congress and the Senate in Washington, D.C., that saving these lands and conserving these lands is truly worthwhile. Do we have a large contingency doing that now? Yes, but don't live, don't leave it up to those spark plugs, I'll say, of the environmental communities to do it because the landowners and the people managing these lands, we don't have, I hate to say we don't have the time, we don't have the money, 
We, there's a lot of things we don't have because we're still operating on a slim margin of profit. So we've got to be on the land. Got to make a living. We got to make a living. But if you think it's worthwhile, and that's my job, that's our job, that's University of Florida's job to be able to show you passively what we're doing for society that nobody realized. You can talk about the panther running through the swamp. That's a great motivator. Wildlife corridor is a great motivator, but what is paramount importance in the state of Florida's water that if we don't save our water supply if we don't save the quality of water if we don't arrest, address the red tide concerns the nutrients all of those things come into play but basically we need the population to really be engaged with the politicians to tell them look the lands we're saving that's what will help us and I'll add don't underestimate reaching out to somebody, the impact that that can have. As a marketer, there are so many decisions that get made from just a few people letting you know their opinion or what you should do and how many ideas come from an email and come from a phone call that you, you would think everyone's sharing their opinion about things, but a lot of times they're not. I, I, I feel like we've made decisions at the company I work for or in the things that we do, very major decisions based on someone sharing a really heartfelt story about what's important to them. And if you have the time and the ability to reach out to those folks in your area that are making de those decisions, take the time to do it because you might be surprised by how, how few people actually end up to sharing their concern in a, in a way that they're willing to listen. I totally agree with you. You always expect somebody else is doing the job for you because you might see it as, but that simple fact of picking up the phone and, and possibly, and this is, this is a lift is, is looking at that legislation, but there's a lot of environmental groups that will put out something and say, your voice can matter. I don't care which one it is, but if it, it will help us pick up the phone or most of the time it's going to be via email um, in this day and time. There's not many politicians uh, answering the phone, but everybody looks at the number of emails that come in and they have an algorithm that shows, okay, was it one blank email that we changed the name at the top or was it singular that I wrote something and Mason wrote something different? And when you see a thousand come in uh, on, that, on that computer, they're going to walk in there and say, Senator, we had a thousand people say they wanted to see this passed. That's, you know, that's going to help. Also getting involved with the political process. If you see somebody that is really doing what you think is right and they're doing a great job, we've got a lot of them out there. Um, donate to their political campaigns. Uh, and by the way, conservation is a bipartisan issue. Absolutely. Period. You know. I mean, you know, we know the period thing, but uh, we've, you know, history tells us. But that is the truth. When it comes to conservation, it comes to protecting our water supply into a thousand years into the future. It's all bipartisan. One of the rare things. Well, Mr. Strickland, I, uh, I really appreciate the time. Just, I know you're busy. I really, I know you've been traveling around. I know you didn't sleep much last night. I would never have known you put things so so well. So thank you so much for uh, for your time. I have great intelligent friends. <laughs> I'm simply I'm simply uh, parroting the information I've 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 gleaned from them. And of course I do love I do love Florida, just like you. 
I love Florida. If you'd like to support Florida Uncut, just share it with folks. Tell people about these conversations worth having. And if you want to get involved, just start somewhere. Get to know the people who are making a difference in your community and join them. And be sure to get out and explore wild Florida. Bring others with you if you can and tell the stories. Because it's ultimately up to us to keep the wild and natural Florida that we love connected and protected.